Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Thank you, Patricia. Ooh, 29 years. That's so cool. We looked different then, didn't we? We looked different. Yes, I was. I'm not going to let anybody know that I was a fireman. Uh, hey, if you're having a moment where you, you've recently had cataract surgery and you're thinking, wow, I can really see the screens better, it's not your, your, your surgery. Um, as you re- those of you who are here last week, the, our one bulb went out. That's what we thought. So we only had one screen. And you guys were looking at me like this the whole time. But um, we learned it wasn't the bulb. It was actually the projector. So we... Uh, we could have just replaced one, but then we know that it would have been so crisp and clear, and the other one would have been dull, so we did both. So, and I want to give a big shout out to Bob Santi and Danny Sugimoto for getting that done this week. That was a remarkable uh, thing that they accomplished, and um, so I just appreciate them doing that. And, and I'm thinking that just by the screen being this much brighter, I'm going to be like 20% better today. So the only thing is, like, the dullness used to kind of hide this, the, um, where my brain is pushing through. So, you know, every year, um, Christianity Today uh, publishes uh, a report. It's called The 50 Countries Where It's Hardest to Follow Jesus. And uh, it's a look at Christian persecution around the world. And when I say, and when I use that phrase, I'm talking about uh, persecution that occurs uh, simply because someone identifies with Christ. And there, there are some sources that tend to sensationalize those numbers, uh, but Christianity Today uses a group called Open Doors, and um, they have been studying persecution in the world since 1992. And they have become the most reliable and thus uh, authoritative voice on the subject of persecution. So in 2021, I'm going to put some stats up here, there were over 360 million Christians that were living in places where they experienced um, persecution. So if you just do the math, that, that works out to about one in seven Christians. Among those, uh, six, uh, nearly 6,000 Christians in 2021 were killed for their faith. And that was up 24% from 2020. <clears throat> Then uh, 5,100 churches or other religious uh, buildings were attacked in 2021, and that was up 14%. Uh, Over 6,000 believers were detained simply because of their faith. uh, uh, They were detained without trial, and that was up 69%. And uh, many of those, of the uh, 6,900 that were detained, they ended up being arrested, sentenced, and, and imprisoned. And then over 3,800 Christians were abducted, and that was up 124% in one year. 
and uh, the majority of that occurred in Nigeria. And then something's interesting, in 2021, the country that um, is known as the most dangerous country um, in the world for Christians changed for the first time in 20 years. And the most dangerous country in 2021 for Christians was Afghanistan. And uh, for the first time uh, in 20 years, it overtook North Korea as the most dangerous place to be as a Christian. Now, the reason why I share some of those facts with you is uh, in our passage today, we're going to see persecution escalate in the early church. And we're going to see that a man named Stephen, many of you might be familiar with him, um, is literally stoned to death. And when I say stoned to death, I, you know, if you're not familiar with that uh, horrific way of executing somebody in the first century was they would literally take rocks and either cast them at you or beat you with them until you were dead. And his only crime was trying to spread the gospel. So if you're just joining us, we're in this book in the New Testament. It follows the four Gospels. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. It's called Acts. Some, some of your titles say the Acts of the Apostles. It is, it is the biblical history of the first 30 years of the church. And immediately, we have seen that the first church, in their birth years, they start to experience problems from within. We talked about that last week, and now we're going to see how they face opposition from without. And, you know, when that happens, oftentimes the most gifted and best people are targeted because if you can eliminate a leader, oftentimes you can stop a movement. And last week, Stephen popped up in our list of people that were helping widows in this first century church in Jerusalem. And he was part of a crew that was assigned to, they, they were the first deacons, and they were assigned to like fix this inequity in the care of um, Greek-born uh, Jewish, though, widows. And, you know, that was the first time the church was experiencing multiculturalism. There's like this clash in, in this small community of believers. And the church is like, they're just stellar here. They come up with a creative plan that, um, you know, has qualifications with it. They, these people that oversaw this had to be full of the Holy Spirit. They had to be wise. But then, um, I can't remember if we noted it last week, but um, Stephen is especially highlighted by Luke. And he gives a little more detail about him. Like, he's exceptional among the seven. He's noted to be full of faith. And then, just as Patricia just read, he was full of God's grace, full of power, and his life and ministry is associated with great signs and wonders. But I just want to stop here and say, and we'll, we'll come back to this idea, but like, what, what a wonderful thing to be said about you as a Christian, to be full of grace and power. Now, in that context, we see this opposition arising, and Luke tells us from where or whence it comes. In verse 9, he says, Operation, uh, in this, uh, from Acts 6, op opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men. Now, last week, we saw that there are different categories of Jewish people. They're not like a monochromatic group. They, they have all kinds of differences among them. And here's yet another group. Uh, the NIV calls it the synagogue of the freedmen. If you have an, a New Living Translation, it calls them synagogue of the freed slaves. 
And these people were known to be especially um, tenacious for Judaism. Scholars speculate who these people were and how they got this title. Because they don't know for sure. But one of the things that they've speculated is that they had spent times as slaves. And um, it had embittered them. Or they had been slaves who later converted in, a, in another region. And yet in that area wasn't um, demographically uh, filled with people of the Jewish tradition. And so they were always in conflict with their culture in the first century. And um, so Paul, some scholars even think that Paul grew up in this uh, sect because he was from Tarsus and uh, one of the um, synagogues of these freed men uh, was in Tarsus. And some even speculate that Stephen was part of the group because as he interacts with them, they seem very familiar with each other. Either way, as they tried to argue with Stephen, you, Luke brings out how superior his gifts are. In verse 10, he said, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And when they're incapable of persuading Stephen to stop uh, spreading the gospel, these religious leaders, they implement what all autocrats or authoritarians do. In this situation, they used the same tactic against Stephen as was used against Jesus and Peter. In Acts 6.11, they secretly persuaded some to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. So this is the tactic of all authoritarians, first century to modern times. They lied about people, and they spread misinformation about a person or a movement. And then they persuade others to, to corroborate that lie. And then they use those false narratives to stir up others. And as Stephen stands before the, the priest, he asked, the priest asks him, are these things true about you? And Stephen's defense is anything but a defense of that question. It's almost as if he knows from the beginning that this is just a sham of a trial. And other than to reject his faith before them, instead he decides that there's no convincing this court. And so instead of defending himself um, and arguing for himself, he unpacks a brilliant argument for the gospel. And just like Peter and Acts did, in, or Peter did in Acts four, he uses their own Old Testament scriptures to convince them. And he, so what he's doing is he's he's bringing ideas and concepts that are culturally relevant to them, as he explains the gospel to them. And so this is a long section. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to like touch on it. For us, but I'm going to grab the big ideas. His speech is in verses seven, uh, chapter seven, verses two through fifty-three, and he begins with their origins as one of them. He's identifying with them. You're going to see this word "our," and in, in two through sixteen, he says, "Our story begins with Abraham." Stephen starts with Abraham, uh, the father of Judaism. 
And it's with a- because Abraham begins the story of the Jewish people. Uh, he's considered to be the father of Israel, and he reminds them how the God of glory comes to him and says, I want you to leave your land, and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to shine my light through you and your family. And he creates a covenant, a promise, a contract with Abraham. And of course, if you're familiar with the, the Old Testament story of the nation of Israel, Abraham's father, Abraham, his family just grows and they become the nation of Israel. And that, that whole thread up to our day and time, the intent in these people that are God's people, whether they're the family of Abraham and eventually Israel and now the Christian community, um, is to shine the light, to be his image, to show the world what it is like to follow the God of the Bible. And Stephen details how God was faithful to Abraham in his promise to him through his lineage with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These are all revered people in their history. But then he's going to do this with each of his points. There's a twist with it. And after extolling the virtues of Abraham and his direct descendants in Acts 7, 9, um, Stephen says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. This is like telling how Thomas Jefferson was so instrumental to our history and our American heritage. And I've been to... um, his home, uh, in, on D.C. trips and everything. He's just an amazing, brilliant man. So fascinating. I've read a biography about him. But by the way, as amazing of a man as he was, he owned slaves. And he had a relationship with one of his slaves, Sally Hemming, and, and she bore six children to him. The point here is that the Sanhedrin council to, to them, is that they have this idea that they're superior because they're tied to Abraham, but, but Stephen is pointing out your pedigree isn't as strong as you think it is because the greatest fathers of Judaism were flawed, just like all human beings are. And basically, Stephen is saying, you know, you can't worship the human beings in your history. From there, Stephen talks about Moses, who is probably the greatest leader in the nation of Israel, possibly the world. And in 17 through 43, he says, Moses was our great leader. And he begins to tell the story of Moses, his miraculous birth, and how he survives as a newborn, and how God uses his vision and his experiences and his secular education through the Pharaoh to hone him and to be, to, to be the man that leads the nation of Israel out of slavery. So that when Moses steps into that role, when, when Israel escapes Egypt, he's, he's like, he can lead people to survive in the desert like Bear Gryllis. And he's also the conduit through whom the nation of Israel receives the law, the Ten Commandments. And he's to represent the people before God. So this, Moses is their God. And Stephen Stephen acknowledges Moses as this great leader, but then he brings out a twist. And that's in verse 35. He says, this is the same Moses that they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? So this great person 
our people rejected. And then then Stephen talks about how Moses was used to deliver the law as God's representative to how the people were to live. And in verse 39, he says, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and turned their hearts and their hearts turned back to Egypt. So with Abraham, what Stephen is doing is he's pointing out the flaws in their family tree, even through Moses. And even though they hold precious this law that they hold up, not just as an example of way to live, but oftentimes as a, as a way of being superior to the surrounding nations and cultures and to be isolated from them, Stephen says the law is flawed because you've never followed it. We have never followed it as a people. And it's, it's sort of like, you know, like having to grapple with the idea that... Um, you know, our most precious document is what in this country? Declaration of Independence, right? And in it, it says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But we know that the human beings that wrote that were flawed, right? Because not everybody was free. Most of them owned slaves as they wrote that, and many of them probably were just blind to that fact. Now, do you think that... The Sanhedrin Council is taking this all in as constructive criticism. <laughs> and that leads us to the last point that Stephen's going to make with them. The temple is our sacred place of worship. That's in 44 through 50. So remember that the portable version of the temple, uh, the, um, the tabernacle, eventually grows into the temple. And it, this is a sacred place to be for them. It's where they meet with God. And it's, like I said, it's sacred and precious to them, but it's, but it's also like there's a pride in it. But once again, Stephen points out how there's a twist with this. Their, their past, and if you've read your Old Testament, you know some of this, it's filled with idol-making, golden calves and wooden idols. And... They're, they're called out by prophets, by Moses, that you're, you're trying to make, uh, you're, you're forming your own idols made by your own hands. And as much as they declare their allegiance to God, they have wandering hearts. And even their temple has become an idol. Stephen says in verse 48, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Now, when we hear something that's handmade, that's like extra good, Right? Like uh, handmade furniture, handmade pie. That's like, that's extra good. But in this case, um, he's saying that your sacred place of worship is just another, another idol to you. It's a place that you worship because, and you made it with your own hands. So let me ask you, is there anything that Stephen said to them that was untrue? Okay, you guys, you, that's not a quick question. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll say the answer is no. Um, did they need to hear it? Yes. Thank you. In order for them to embrace the true gospel, was it important for them to see how they were placing their confidence in things that actually ended up standing between them and God? Yes. The answer is yes. So, when, when Stephen gets done with this, 
The way the story ends is they all repented and they changed their lives forever and lived happily ever after. No. In verse 57, I have to be really careful with my words these days. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen is the first Christian martyr. Now, a little preview. And I love it if you don't even see this coming. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're my special friend right now. Because this person that's at the scene in Acts 8.1, I'm just going to like open it. It's a little preview of the next episode, okay? Uh, and Saul approved of their killing of him. Approved means here that not just that he agreed, but he's somehow part of this. Like he's given it his blessing, in some way. And we're going to learn. So he's not just an innocent bystander. And if you don't recognize Saul, again, you're my people. I'm really excited for you as we go through this book. Because you're going to see this person who is persecuting Christians dramatically change. And even though you haven't heard of him in this book yet, he's going to become the center of the story because his his life is so important to our heritage. Now, we have said, as we study through Acts, that it is the, the biblical history of the, the early church. But we've also said it's our story too. So how do we apply this today? I know you're thinking, wow, this is going to be inspirational. Here's the main thought. You are God's light you are God's light. What do I mean by that? Remember Jesus said that we're to let our light shine even in the face of opposition. That's exactly what Stephen did. You know, I think Stephen was the kind of guy that he, every morning that he woke up, the first thing on his mind was, how am I going to be a witness for Jesus today? And most of us, deep down in our hearts, we want to be like that. But if we're honest, doesn't it seem like so unattainable? Like I could never be Stephen. You might be saying, I don't want to be Stephen. Don't you just ask yourself, like when you read these stories, and in particular, like here, Stephen, like how could he do that? How could he be so brave? How was he so committed? And we just kind of read through that and like it doesn't, because we become so familiar, it doesn't like really impact us the way it should. I want to tell you something. God doesn't expect you or me to be Stephen. But he does invite us to shine the light. But as us in our time. Here's a few thoughts I want to share with you in the remaining minutes that I'm going to be teaching that I think that we should consider when we think about being God's light in our day and time. Number one, as God's light, you'll likely face opposition, so you will need to be courageous. 
if you choose to be a light for Jesus, it's not always going to be easy. You say, well, it's not easy now. Right. So you get the point. Christianity is not for sissies. You can be Christian-y if you want, but still fly under the radar. Right? And you can, you can join, you know, the church of what's happening today and kind of stay under the radar and it will be a lot easier for you. But eventually, Saul, our guy, who, be, who they changed his name to Paul, he will write to a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, uh, persecution is very, it's a very clear and present danger to many believers around the world today. And it's horrific, it's horrific to think about what's happening. And we, we're so insulated from it. And so when I talk about persecution today here, I don't want to trivialize, tri- trivialize what's happening around the world. So that's why I intentionally use the word opposition, that, we're fa- that we will face opposition. Because I'm talking to you in 2022 in the Temecula Valley. You know, recently they did a study of evangelical leaders, pastors, and they asked them about what their experience has been with persecution and what their expectations are in the future. And I'm going to put a chart up here on our really super clear screen. Doesn't, isn't that crisp? Thank you. Yeah. So... Um, the question here is, have you ever been persecuted for your faith? And do you think you'll be persecuted for your faith um, in coming years? So a third indicated, only a third have said they felt like sometime in their life as a Christian leader they had faced persecution. But what's interesting here, I want to bring out, is 76% of them expect that they will be persecuted in coming years. What do you think? Why? Why is this going to happen? Well, number one, can we just be honest for a minute, Christians? We bring some of it on ourselves. Um, And I have to be a little extra honest with you. You know, I, I heard someone's grandma that said, when you get older, you don't change, you just get extra. So... I'm going to be a little extra here. Some of the meanest and persecuting people that I've known in the last 10 years call themselves Christians. And it should not be that way. And if that upset you, I want you to send your emails to bobsanti at sunridgechurch.org. <laughs> but it's also true that public opinion is changing. It kind of depends on where you live regionally. But um, all kinds of public opinion and legal norms that are kind of like centered around religion, they've really changed in the last decade. And uh, many believe that uh, traditional convictions or Christian thought is being increasingly pushed to the margin. And uh, I would encourage you, if you're new at Sundance, to go back into our sermon archives and listen to Countercultural. What are we supposed to do that? It's a study of First Peter. And I think... Most of us would answer in the affirmative if we were to consider the question, are there people in the world today that despise Christians 
and or seek to avoid them or ban them from government or education or academia. You know what? If you're going to live as a Christian, it's going to take courage. And Stephen is an incredible model of what that looks like on a Christian. So the question is, are we going to be God's light? And are we up for what might come with that? The second thought I want to bring out is this. You are God's light in 2022. Now, you might say, well, you just repeated the main point. But I didn't. What I'm, what I'm drawing out here is, one, who the light is in this case. It's you and me, not Stephen. We, gotta, we have to note that. And the time and place is different. We're not in the first century. We're in 2022. So it's going to look differently. And, you know, like a good illustration of that to me is how much lighting, light has changed over the centuries. Remember, originally, the only, what was the original light? A fire. Keep that fire going, right? So that you can see, so you can read your cave writings or whatever. But eventually, uh, well, I would say before that, it was the sun. And then when the sun went down, it was over. There's no more light. But then, they, then we had fire. And then we had candles. And then we had gas lamps. And then there were filament light bulbs in different versions. And now you can't even get those, right? It's all LED. And you're like, I don't like the way that thing looks in there. And uh, where's, my, where's my mellow light, which they've improved on? And now you have low voltage. So light has changed, and I think that that's a good way to think about how, how to bring the gospel in our day and time. The context has changed, and that's what they're doing in the first century, even though maybe that's not so apparent to you as you read uh, Acts. Now, when I say to contextualize a gospel, I'm not saying to compromise it or to water it down in any way, but here's contextualization in a nutshell. Number one, it's like that you should consider the times you're, we should consider the times we're living in, who we're talking to, and who you and I are. That's, that's how we contextualize the message of the gospel. And too many Christians today are making the mistake of using, trying to like take the exact same tactics from 2,000 years ago, and applying them, even the language, applying it to our day and time. We have to remember that Stephen is talking to leaders of Judaism who lived 2,000 years ago. So, if you were to sit down with your friend tomorrow and share the gospel, and you start referencing Abraham, Moses, and the temple, unless they're devoutly Jewish, um, it's not going to translate to them. Secondly, if you're going to stand on a corner with a bullhorn and you're going to shout, ye stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. That's not going anywhere, you guys. That's dead on arrival. I love how Paul described his strategy In his second letter to the believers in Corinth, chapter 10, verse 5, he says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, Paul says we remove barriers. We remove barriers and obstacles that hinder people's thoughts 
of understanding the message of the gospel. That's our goal. So if that's our goal, we can't use the language and concepts completely of the first century. And we can't try to be someone that we're not. There's a study uh, that was done recently that found that 25% of adults in America would say that they're completely skeptical about faith. But over 50% would be open to hearing about Jesus. So what can we do to contextualize, to talk to them about this most important thing in our life, who Jesus is? Where do we start? Let me, let me first just suggest one thing we don't do. And this isn't in your notes, but it's going to be up on the screen. So it's a freebie. Don't weaponize the gospel. By that, I mean that that's exactly the opposite of what God wants us to do. And if we use the gospel to condemn people without helping them understand the gospel, then that will never work. That would never work on you and me. If I just walked up and I started like blowing you up over something, you're, you're like, you're just shutting down, right? So, if, if we want to remove barriers from people, is it wise for us to make enemies of the people that we're called to reach? Are you tracking with me? You guys okay? Okay. See, Paul said to take down barriers. Don't create more. I'm, and again, I'm not saying we compromise content. You're going to see as we go through the, uh, the book of Acts how important the content of the gospel is. We're going to talk more about that. Secondly, don't weaponize the gospel. Number two, realize people who are not religious or unchurched have all kinds of questions, uncertainty, uncertainties, doubts, questions, defensiveness. Those are called the barriers. So they, that's, that's all the stuff between... You and me as believers today and, and helping someone understand who God is and what it means to receive the gospel. Because someone doesn't just jump into faith after a three-minute presentation and a gospel track unless somebody has been spending a lot of time with them. So coming from that understanding, if we... If we're patient, and in reverse, we ask lots of questions of them. And by the way, when I say questions, there's like, it's not what, like, I have to tell you, my older daughters, April and Amber, they took this part serious when they were growing up about sharing Jesus with people. So, you know, and we moved out here when everybody was new, and you went around and talked to your neighbors, and I know we don't do that anymore. But um, sorry if you just moved here. Your opportunity for connection is over in this valley. But April and Amber would get on their bikes and they would ride around the neighborhood. And, and if someone was out, adults sometimes, like, hi, I'm April. This is Amber. Do you love Jesus? They would just start off with that. Do you go to church? Because we do. It's like, ex on the, you know. So we have to be careful about the questions we ask. They have to ha be questions that help people understand. But, and if they have questions for us, hard questions, 
Don't fake your answers. And don't be defensive about their questions. A couple months ago, I had a colleague um, that I got to baptize in his home, and he's gravely ill. I worked with him in the fire department, and I taught um, in the academy with him. We were part of the ladder cadre. That means we taught people how to put up ladders in the fire service. And um, just an amazing guy. And uh, a believer, but because he's gravely ill, he's thinking a lot about things. He might even be listening right now, watching me. And, um, you know, when I went to baptize him, or even before I baptized him, he just wanted to talk to me. And, he, and here was his basic question. You know, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm trusting in him. But, like, I just keep thinking I'm not good enough. I think about all the stuff that I've done in my life, and I'm thinking, there's just no way. And so he and I got to have this great conversation about the grace of God and how salvation comes, that it isn't what we do, it's what Christ has done. And it wasn't a two-minute conversation. It was a long conversation. That's what I'm talking about. And I just, you know, like, that was such a great moment for me because he's a brother in the fire service, and we had lots of fun and done stuff together. And yet I got to, like, enter into his world, and he was... I mean, firemen can be crusty, and we don't like to tell you that our feelings are hurt or anything, but, um, you know, he was being honest with me. What a great moment for me and him. And, you know, I, I think when we think about the gospel through how the world is today, I think we should spend more time telling people how Jesus gets us, that he understands what it's like to be a human being in a, in a culture that rejects God or is hard or is unfair because Jesus faced injustice and he was arrested wrongly and executed for it. Uh, he faced all kinds of racial and economic division. He was canceled. Um, and, and, you know, in general, people are people and so they're still struggling in their marriage in other relationships. They want to know how to be good parents. Um, they want to know what to do in retirement, to have a purpose in their life. And if you're a Christian, you should be like thinking, like, how do I shine the light of who God is with the people that God allows me to have those conversations? Last. Luke uses up a lot of word space here, um, not just like, telling us, um, you know, how to give the gospel or like in that context, but, and how great Stephen was and brave, but like he describes the person he was. And uh, if we're going to shine the light, we need to realize this, that your life shines brighter than your words, but you can use words too. If we're going to be light shiners today, I think we need more life less words. It's obvious here that Stephen is especially gifted at words and doing things. He performed great signs and wonders among the people, and he's super intelligent because he's, a, he's debating the top religious thinkers in his day, and they could not stand up to the wisdom that he was bringing. He, they couldn't keep up with what he was laying down on them. But then Luke also notes his character, and I referenced this in the beginning. In Acts 6-8, Stephen, 
was a man full of God's grace and power. Full of God's grace, which is winsomeness and power. And as I said in the beginning, what, what a great character reference to be full of God's grace and power at the same time. It's such an amazing and rare combination, but it is what John said about Jesus, that he was full of grace and truth. So Stephen proves that a Christian can be both simultaneously powerful and winsome. And I think that's something for us to learn here. Even in his last words, Stephen has much to, or Luke has much to say about how Stephen's life shined. In verse 60, he, when, while being stoned, he, he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. That's not just a remote Bible story that we can just graze over or glance over. It's a person whose last words tells us so much about the individual that he was. If it had been me, I'd be saying, while they're doing that to me, I will haunt you the rest of your life, and I will hunt you down. <laughs> but even in his death, Stephen's light shined. In that moment, he looked an awful like Jesus. And didn't he sound like Jesus, too? I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I don't know about you, but when I look at what could be out in front of us and what is before us today, I think we need a lot more people like this. We need them to show up. I kind of look at church like a flashlight factory, that we all come here as believers and we get our batteries charged up, you know, on Sunday morning, through our life group, through Bible studies. And with that picture, I'm afraid that too many Christians are keeping their light turned off. Or they're only shining it in a safe little circle where everybody else has a flashlight. Or they're taking their flashlight and shining it annoyingly in people's face. Like when that person doesn't turn their brights off on the mountain road and you say unchristian things about them as they go by. <laughs> so here's the question that relates back to the main thought. Like, how can you and I be God's light? You say, well, Britt, that's really hard today. It is. And yet we see that the opposition that Stephen faced enabled him to rise to um, his greatest moment. And I would note that his rising to his moment and he went to his knees. My brothers and sisters, Sunridge Community Church, this is your moment. This is our moment. The only question we have to ask is, will we rise to the moment? The early church, our heritage, they've showed us the way. We are God's light. Would you stand and worship with us? Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. 
We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.